Worried about how a painful market correction could impact your wealth? In this video, we walk through the most common hedging techniques you can use to protect your portfolio from downside risk. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, and today we're going to walk through the fundamentals for how to hedge your portfolio against the risk of a coming correction in the markets. Now, I recently polled the Wealthion audience about what topics you all would like to see us cover next on this channel, and learning how to hedge was a clear number one. Well, your wish is our command. So let's get started. But as we do, don't worry about taking notes here. Everything we're about to talk about is nicely summarized in a free report you can download at the end of this video. And joining me today to help explain the most common hedging practices are John Lodra and Mike Preston, the lead partners of New Harbor Financial, the financial advisory firm officially endorsed by Wealthion. They have decades of experience putting the techniques we discuss here into practice to protect the thousands of accounts they manage from downside market risk. John and Mike, many thanks for joining me today. Are you guys ready to jump right in? We're ready. We're ready. Let's get started. Thanks, Adam. Happy to be with you, Adam. This is uh, something that's near and dear to our heart. We'd love to educate and uh, we'd love to be practitioners of, of what we do here. All right, great. Well, guys, as we get started, let's just start at the top. Why hedge? What are the benefits of hedging? The reason you hedge is to minimize losses. And the key word is to minimize or reduce. You can't eliminate. You cannot eliminate losses or risk at all. I mean, it's all hedges are designed to defray or to make the sting a little less severe. There's always some kind of deductible involved. And usually that deductible is in the form of the cost of the insurance. And uh, you know any distance from the present market price to the price at which the insurance kicks in. So everything we're going to be talking about here is, is not a perfect solution, but it's meant to keep you in the game, to make the, the ride more comfortable, to make the path less severe. We're living through a time here that feels like there's there's no risk. We can tell you that risk is higher than ever. At some point, we'll learn that, and a lot of people will learn that the hard way. These hedges are meant to make that make that trip less uh, less painful. All right, John, I'll, I'll let you comment here in just a second. But is it fair to say that that hedging is sort of like buying insurance, where you are um, paying a smaller fee uh, to protect against big downside risk? Yeah, that's exactly. That's a, a very fine analogy, Adam. Um, and like Mike said, there, there is no free lunch in anything in life and certainly not in investing. And, and hedging by definition has comes with some costs, if you will, either real costs in terms of out-of-pocket outlay for that quote-unquote insurance or lost opportunity. There, as we'll talk about later on, there are ways to, to hedge by, by foregoing some opportunity to, to the extreme upside. And it's about hedging to us is about a broader discussion about um, discipline, about uh, buy and sell discipline. Um, you know, when we en envision a um, an entry of a security or investment for a client, we always do so with a mindset or or a an action plan of a you know kind of an upside target action point, if you will, but also a downside target. Um, you know, uh, and and those triggers in, in our kind of game plan, if you will. Um, invoke in our minds and in, 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 in our action a, a game plan for uh, either um, 
locking in profits, protecting profits, you know, tightening up, you know, the bandwidth of the volatility that um, uh, one is willing to to accept. And I guess it, it, we'd be remiss if we didn't speak, um, bring this practical to to folks in, in their lives. I mean, if we were talking about a perpetual endowment that had, you know, was around for you know, three or 500 years, you know, if you, if you can even imagine that time frame in, in these days, but we're talking about our clients are real people, real lives. And um, most of them don't get a do over with the um, financial assets that they've uh, amassed. And sometimes the, the most sin, sinful, um, you know, thing to do is, is to, uh, you know, mess up a good situation. Someone that's got a good fo- solid financial footing they don't need to, nor should they be taking extreme risk um, to to uh, shoot for the moon when they, you know, their biggest risk is is unwittingly um, suffering a big decline that could could wipe out uh, good footing. And then just the final comment I'll, I'll say, and I think we've already touched upon this. Sometimes the the best form of insurance is to not not drive the car. You know, we like to use the analogy here in New England when we have a big uh, blizzard. Um, sometimes the risk is is sufficiently high that it just makes sense to keep the car in the garage. It doesn't matter how good a gold-plated insurance policy you have. The, the best risk-prudent strategy is to keep the car in the garage. And the analogy here in, in investing, of course, is to scale back. Sometimes just selling an investment outright and locking in those, those profits or, or the current price is the best form of prudency that one can, can uh, exercise. All right, guys. Well, great context for starting here. And really, I think the reason why there is so much interest right now in a video like this on hedging uh, is largely for two reasons. Um, One, John, as you just said, um, I think the majority of people watching this video um, are probably over 40. Um, Some of them maybe even a couple decades older than that. And to your point, uh, they have uh, worked hard to amass whatever wealth they have. Uh, but they don't want to have to do a do-over. Uh, they, they don't have the time left in their life. Uh, so they don't want to be taking excessive risk with the assets they currently have. They really want to be, you know, I think they're prioritizing safety and capital preservation at this stage in their life um, than perhaps somebody who might be in their 20s, for example. Uh, secondly, uh, if these folks are regular watchers of, of this channel, you know, they've seen us talk uh, many, many times over the past months about how extreme today's market valuations are. And so uh, if somebody is uh, holding on to long positions in the market, um, I think a lot of people watching this video are kind of skittish. You know, they're, they're concerned that things have been so good for so long in terms of market returns that there could be a pretty painful reversion to the mean and they don't want to become roadkill in that process if, if prices violently and suddenly correct. Uh, and so they're looking for ways to preserve, uh, you know, their capital in that type of situation. And that's what hedging is really perfect for. So uh, let's get into the actual specific practices, uh, the most common uh, hedging practices out there. And I, I do want to let folks know that we're going to walk through sort of a spectrum uh, of um, complexity. We're going to start with the most simple and we'll, we'll get to the more esoteric near the end. Um, but I really want to underscore that really anybody can hedge, um, you know, even if it's just using the most basic hedging techniques out there. Uh, and John just talked about one of them, more or less, which is just not playing the game. So as we kick off here, let's just start with the most simple guys. Um, and John, I'll go back to you since you mentioned it. But cash is a hedge, correct? 
It certainly is. It um, you know any, any you know I guess maybe a definition of hedging. Hedging by definition is something that um, mitigates or offsets the potential loss, uh, if not for the hedging, if, if, if the absence of the hedging. So you know, doing something where there is no corresponding opportunity or possibility of loss is by definition speculation, right? So. Um, imagine a 100% stock market portfolio. The act of selling down some of that stock market portfolio down to 75% or 50% or 30%, whatever the number is, by definition mitigates um, the volatility, potential volatility uh, as compared to the alternative, holding 100% invested stock market portfolio. Um, so yeah, the cash becomes um, a offset um, to an otherwise uh, potentially volatile portfolio. And of, of course, when we're talking about volatility, we're talking about both upside and downside. But in the environment we're in right now, as we record this video in, at the end of September of uh, 2021, um, we certainly assign a skew to the risk uh, uh, to the downside, not necessarily over the next week or next month, but in the kind of life cycle or cycle uh, horizon that most investors think of, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, that kind of thing. Um, so selling down a stock market portfolio to, to some degree of cash, a large or a lot, is by definition a hedge as compared to a fully invested one. And the reason that cash is a hedge is, is self-evident. You know, cash is not subject to market volatility. Uh, certainly in this current environment, it's not yielding a lot. But again, we're focusing on preservation here, not return on capital, but return of capital. And that cash has an additional feature in that it provides what we call option value. It provides the option or the ability to convert that cash at some more opportunistic time to back to stocks or other some other investment that then have more compelling risk reward um, dynamics than at present. All right. Well said, John. And, and I guess the only thing I'll add about cash is, um, you know, when you hedge, as I said earlier, you're paying a small fee to protect against a large potential loss, the fee you're spending with cash is basically the opportunity cost. So should the market just continue going up and up and up and you're sitting in cash, you're missing out on that opportunity. I know a lot of people have been sitting on cash for the past couple of years, have felt like they've taken on a pretty big opportunity cost. Um, but you know, the future is never known for certain. And you know, you're sitting in that cash position because you want to have that, that option value that you were talking about, that if prices do go down, you can then deploy that cash at much better valuations. All right, well, Mike, let me let me come to you next to talk about uh, stops. Um, I, these are, I think, probably the most common hedging technique beyond cash that's used out there. But I think for some of the viewers here, they they probably never used stops before. Can you just briefly describe for folks how stops work? Yeah, a stop is basically an order to, to sell generally or buy a security at a predetermined price. I'd like to I'd like to say that having a stop means that you have a plan. You know, whether that stop is actually put in the market or if it's a stop that you have in your mind called a mental stop, it just means you have a plan. The easiest thing to do in the world is to buy an investment. That's easy. Press a button and you're in. How about getting out? That's not easy. You know, getting out involves emotions, and usually it means that you're going to have some regret. Either the stock goes higher after you sell it, you know, uh, or, um, you know, you, you, it goes down and you didn't sell it soon enough. 
So having a stop basically means you're, you're stopping the trade, you're getting out. So uh, it's a good thing to have, either a mental or a real stop. A stop is sometimes called a stop loss, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to imply a loss. You can have a different kind of stop, a trailing stop that protects gains. So in the simplest sense, a stop order is simply an order that you place with your broker that turns generally into a market order. Let's say a stock is trading at $100 a share, you buy it there and you decide, well, if it goes down to 90, I want out. The simplest example of a, of a stop order would be that you put an, an, a good till canceled order in. It's a stop sell order in that case at 90. If the stock touches 90, it turns into a market order if it's just a regular stop order. And um, you know you can you can feel good in general about getting out at ninety uh, if the if the stock trades there in a normal fashion. Now, if the stock opens one morning down fifty percent at fifty, it turns into a market order at fifty. There's some nuances about other types of orders, stop limit orders, and so on that we can get into. I'm not so sure that it's uh, beneficial uh, to talk about all those nuances here. The important thing to know is that with a stop order, you have a plan, and either you place that uh, you place that order in the the market with a broker, like I just described at ninety, or you even have a mental idea that hey, if it gets to ninety, I'm getting out. That's the important thing is to have a plan. Most people don't have a plan. All right, really well said, Mike. And yeah, we're going to stick at the relatively high level in describing each of these solutions here. Um, just not to make this video like a five hour long video and, and, and very complex. But the key point that folks should take away from this is uh, there are lots of ways in which you can protect your, your wealth through hedging. But if you are inexperienced with them, we highly, highly recommend that you work with a financial professional that has a lot of experience with these and they can be your guide in helping you determine which are best for you. I also love that you underscored, Mike, that one of the big um, things that, that stops do for us, in fact, most hedging uh, practices do, is they remove the, the human element from the, the equation here. So we're humans, we're emotional, um, very common as soon as somebody starts taking a loss in a position, they go into the bargaining phase. Of, well, okay, I'll just hold it until it gets back to where I bought it, and then I'll sell out, and people can uh, just exhibit a lot of self-destructive behavior from then on as they'll, they'll you know, oftentimes ride a bad investment down way further than they ever originally intended. And it's because their human programming gets in the way. Where to your point, if you just come up with a, an, an intellectual empirical plan from the beginning of what your maximum loss potential is, uh, stops are really helpful with that. Um, and, and really quickly, um, I just want to uh, you talked about two types of stops. You talked about the traditional stop loss, which says, hey, if the price drops to X, I'm out. I don't want to take any more losses than that. You also mentioned the trailing stop order. And I just wanted to give a tiny bit more clarity on that. And that's where you basically um, say, uh, I don't want to lose more than 10% of this stop. And so if the stock then rises, the nice thing about a trailing stock is let's say your $100 stock goes to $200. Well, if you have a trailing stop on there at 10%, um, now that 10% that drop would be um, instead of 90, which is where you started, it's now 180. So you are um, you know, basically protecting your gains as the, the stock appreciates. So 
I don't want to get into any more detail than that, but I want to let folks know that there is some, you know, interesting yet valuable um, variety of how, how stops can be used. Okay, now, John, let me come to you and let's talk about um, ETFs, um, specifically inverse ETFs and leveraged ETFs. Um, mm -hmm. And as we begin to get into some of these other forms of, uh, of hedging, uh, it's interesting, some of these vehicles can also be used for speculation. They can be used to add risk to your positions, but we're gonna mostly focus on how you can reduce risk in your positions with these. So can you define, John, what an inverse ETF is for folks? Yeah, absolutely, Adam. So, so an inverse ETF is, uh, well, first of all, an ETF is, is an exchange traded fund. That's an investment vehicle called an exchange traded fund. And they're, they're like index um, funds, but they trade like stocks, okay? Now, an inverse ETF um, is one that uh, tracks inversely to the underlying index that it's keyed to, okay? So for example, we might talk about the S&P 500. There are a increasingly number of inverse ETFs uh, keyed to the S&P 500 index that on a daily basis, now this is key key point, um, the, all these products are meant to inversely track um, on, on a given day, and it resets every day, essentially, the performance or the, the movement in, of that index on that day. Okay, now an inverse ETF on a given day, let's say the S&P 500 is up half a percent on a given day, more or less, so there might be some small little leakage due to fees and things like that. But on, on that same day, an inverse, a one-time inverse non-levered ETF key to the S&P 500 would, would tend to go down about a half a percent on that day. Vice versa also holds. If the S&P was down half a percent on a given day, that inverse ETF should be up uh, about half a percent on that day. Now, the, the reason I want to emphasize the, the daily aspect that, that they track day to day uh, is that feature is a feature and a bug in, in a sense. Um, and depending on how um, that the index tracks over time, uh, up and down, um, there can be the introduction of what is called tracking error, um, where um, let's say over a six month period, the S&P 500 is down 3%, um, but the inverse ETF is flat or maybe up half a percent. Now, in, you know, most folks would be surprised that, hey, I would have thought this would be up 3% because the S&P is down 3% over that time frame, And it really depends on how that path has occurred day to day to get to that down 3% over a six month period because of the, the feature. And it, it almost bears a, a spreadsheet illustration as to how this can happen. But suffice it to say that the more volatile, the more up and down a path is, the greater the potential for this tracking error where the, um, you know, the performance of an inverse ETF is, is not exactly uh, you know, inverse in, in equal percentage magnitude over a span of time. Now, a leveraged ETF is one that, as the name implies, uses leverage uh, to magnify the, the performance uh, of that ETF. Now, case magnifying can work to or against you, depending on whether the trend of the underlying index is, is you know, in the direction that you expected it be. So using, a, you know, you can get a, a two times in, uh, levered ETF or three times where 
again, using the example of uh, on a given day, the S&P going up half a percent, well, a two times levered inverse ETF would be down roughly about 1% that day and vice versa. If the index was down half a percent on that given day, the two times levered inverse ETF should be up about 1%. Um, and as with anything, when you get more magnification, that tracking error that we just spoke of um, can be all that much more magnified with a levered ETF. And, you know, I talked about a two times levered, there are three times levered, um, which again, magnifies for, for better or quite potentially worse, the, the, um, some of the dynamics we just talked about. Uh, we would generally advise folks to stick, stay clear of the, the, the levered ETFs. Those are the hallmarks of speculation. Typically a, a retail investor is not starving for cash in their account to, to buy a, a single uh, uh, non-levered ETF. When you start getting a levered ETFs, it, it, it um, starts to, generally speaking, um, veer into the category of speculation, not hedging. And we can certainly talk at, at length about that. All right. Um, I don't think we need to get it at length into it. I think you did a good job of describing it here. But basically, these are vehicles that go the opposite direction uh, of um, some part of the market, whether you're buying an index or a sector fund or whatever. Um, and so let's say, you, you know, perhaps you're, you're, you're long, you get, a, you get a big long position in a certain sector, you're just long the market in general, um, and you're worried that we might be going into a period of time where there's higher risk than normal of a market correction. Um, perhaps you might want to buy one of these inverse ETFs uh, as short-term protection. And as you're saying, the longer you, you hold one of these inverse ETFs, uh, the longer the, tr the bigger the tracking error becomes as an issue. So it's really not something you want to hold on to for a long period of time. Um, all right. So I think you did a good job of describing that, John. And for folks, I just want to emphasize for these, you're still long a vehicle. So you're, 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 you're buying the inverse S&P, whether it's one, two, or three times leverage, but you're, you're, you're long that instrument. Um, I want to contrast that to now shorting, which is a I think very common way of, of, of hedging, where you're basically, um, uh, it's, it's similar in that you're, you're sort of betting against where the price of a certain stock or index is going to go. But instead of buying an inverse, you're actually selling the security itself. So uh, Mike, let me go to you. Can you quickly describe what shorting is for folks and how it can be used to hedge? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we, we actually do use that strategy. I mean, right now we're, we're short the S&P 500 um, and it's in a paired trade with our, our position in emerging markets. So, but shorting a, an instrument directly is a little bit different. Well, what we have done is we're using a non-leveraged uh, inverse ETF like John just described. But shorting directly can also be done. And the way you do that is you simply borrow a security and sell it before you buy it. It's really just the opposite of the normal uh, investment or the trade that people are accustomed to, buying a stock, selling it later. If you short a stock or an index, you sell it first and buy it back later. So to do it, to do that, you have to establish an account with a broker you have to have a margin agreement on file. Margin basically is a concept where 
you you can it basically allows you to borrow from a broker either securities or or money cash in this example you would you basically open up a brokerage account establish the margin agreement and and borrow the stock and sell it first you know you you can pick any stock but if it's an actively traded stock it will be on um the, the 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 broker's borrow list. So if you wanted to to short one of the big tech stocks, you would borrow it, sell it first. Let's say let's use the same example of hundred dollars a share, and then hopefully buy it back later at a lower price. That would result in a profit. So if you sold at hundred dollars a share, then if you bought it back for less than hundred dollars a share down the road, you'd make a profit. Important to keep in mind though that you have to post margin. So generally speaking, you have to post 50% margin to start a position. So if you shorted $100,000 just to use round numbers, you'd have to post at least $50,000 margin, keep that 50% margin. And if subsequently the value of your account decreases in the case of a stock going up, you would have to post more margin. That's called a margin call. Generally, when the, when the account falls below 30% equity, you're gonna get a margin call. So there's, there's some risk there, but the, the whole thing in concept is pretty simple in that it is just the reverse of what people are normally used to. So if you wanted to hedge a portfolio of tech stocks, you could short the QQQ or something similar, an ETF that tracks the NASDAQ. And you know, it's there's a lot of different ways to go about it, but that is the, the concept. You simply short a basket of stocks or an individual stock to hedge other positions, or you can simply do it in speculation because you think that it's going to go down, but you have to bear in mind the risks. And there's no limit to losses theoretically when you short because a stock could technically go to infinity, not in real life, but you can, you can, you can lose a lot more. If, if you buy a stock, you can't lose more than you put in. If you short a stock, you can lose multiples of what you started with. All right, well said, Mike. Uh, so just to sort of summarize, when you're going long a stock or an instrument, your strategy there is to buy low and sell high. And when you're shorting, your goal is to sell high and then buy it back low. That's right. I see you nodding here, yeah. Um, and it does offer some additional benefits beyond um, say an inverse ETF. Um, one, it doesn't have the decay that uh, the tracking error that John was talking about. Uh, and two, ETFs do have management fees and whatnot that do eat into the return. Shorting a stock doesn't, doesn't have that, um, but it, it does have some material risks, as Mike mentioned, um, one of which is that your, your potential losses are unlimited. Um, we just saw you know, early this year with some of the meme stocks uh, where a bunch of hedge funds got in trouble because they were short uh, stocks like GameStop, which were kind of left for dead companies, but because uh, something extraordinary happened, uh, those stocks went from you know a couple dollars a share up to several hundred dollars a share very quickly. And those hedge funds just learned how quickly uh, those unlimited losses can <laughs> can rack up. Um, so basically, the the punchline there is just make sure you know what you're doing, uh, and uh, you know make sure that if you are shorting. Uh, that you have, you know, some stops in place and things like that, where you've got you've got triggers that you're going to get out if it looks like your bet is going against you. Um, all right, so John, let's now get into um, options, which uh, becomes, you know, 
relatively easy to understand kind of in general theory, but they can become quite complicated quite quickly. I believe you guys are also working on another video that's going to delve more deeply into uh, the details of the options trades that you guys use at New Harbor. Uh, but I know that you guys are very, very uh, experienced using options as a hedging tool. Can you just sort of give the basics for folks here? Yeah, I, I do want to make one, one point about shorting that um, to, to emphasize some of the risk categories. So because of the fact that, um, you know, shorting instruments requires a margin account, many folks uh, lose sight of how that works. And, and in fact, um, margin accounts allow you to short um, uh, more securities than, than what you have cash in accounts. So you can essentially become unwittingly levered um, uh, in a margin account and, and really get into, into trouble. Um, so folks should be very mindful that the, the, the margin accounts allow for a lot more buying power as, as the, uh, as the uh, you know, term is used than, than, than they have cash in the account, so to speak, or, or value in the account. Uh, but yeah, options. Um, so I first want to speak to the fact that options um, can, there are certain uses of options that can be very, very speculative. And uh, there's good reason why in many people's perception, options are, are very risky uh, securities because they can be used in those ways. Um, we don't use options in that way. And in fact, uh, with our client accounts, we, uh, when we set them up, we set them up for a very basic level of option permissions, such that if we accidentally uh, entered a trade that would fall in the category of very risky, the trade would actually get rejected because it, the, our client accounts aren't. So for those that are inclined to use options on their own, we would encourage you to to limit the kinds of approvals that you set your own account up for uh, to, to only include those that are, are quite conservative hedging uses, not speculating, speculating uses. There are two types of options, okay? Uh, and the basic instruments are, 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 are by name call options and put options. Um, it perhaps makes sense to talk about put options because they are oftentimes the most uh, you know, intuitive kinds of options for folks to, to understand. And, and that's because uh, put options, if used on their, um, uh, on their own as a hedge, we, it, it takes some of the label of what's called a protective put option. And it's very analogous to insurance. So let's say you own uh, $100,000 of a given stock or even 10,000, whatever the number is. Um, let's say you have 100 shares of, of a stock and you want to draw a line in the sand that um, you don't want to uh, suffer more than a 10% uh, loss, okay? And you want to essentially buy insurance 10% down from here. Well, that, that would be a, a perfect analogy for using put options. You know, let's say the stock is at $100 a share and you want to buy protection below $90, $90 a share. You would buy a put option that has a so-called strike price of $90 a share and you have to pay something for that option, okay? The so-called insurance premium, uh, but you would be protected uh, below, if the stock were to drop below, anywhere below $90 a share. Even if it went to zero, you would be protected by that option for that difference, 90 to zero. Now, like insurance, there are a couple of parameters that make sense to talk about. Most forms of insurance involve a premium and a deductible, okay? And generally speaking, or, or the law of insurance is, the bigger the deductible that the insured party is willing to bear their self, themselves, the lower the premium that they have to pay. Okay, so it's a trade-off between 
paying premium and assuming de deductible. In the case of that analogy I just gave of the $100 stock and you wanting to protect 90 or, or lower or below 90, that $10 difference, the 100 to 90, that, that is effectively the deductible that the hedger would have to bear before the insurance kicks in. And it might cost, let's say hypothetically, a dollar a share for that, that protection, that put option, okay? So that $10 deductible plus the dollar outlay for the premium uh, would effectively be a, an $11 um, downside risk or, or maximum downside to that, that party. Um, because again, the deductible plus the out-of-pocket premium. And then anything below that would be uh, losses offset by the, by the put option, okay? Um, another key feature of, of options is that they have an expiration date. Um, you know, an option, you know, they trade every month uh, and even on weekly um, horizons for shorter term options. Um, but, you know, depending on how long in the future you want to secure that insurance for, you would pick that expiration date. And, and again, another law of the universe, I suppose, is the longer you, you go out in time, the more expensive that insurance is going to be. Okay. So I'll just pause there. That's, that's the put option. Call option is, is, a, is the flip side of that, where um, there's no cost for, um, you know, so, so where you, whereas you buy a put option, um, we use call options and a, a great way to use them in hedging. Uh, it's a partial hedge, however is to do what's called a covered call option, where you own an underlying um, stock and you want to mitigate to some degree the downside potential in that stock. And you can do so by selling a call option against that stock. Again, you need to own the stock to, to, to be able to sell that call option and have it be a hedge. If you don't own the stock and you sell the call option, it's, it's referred to as naked call selling and it's actually an unlimited and very risky proposition to, to do. But again, you sell a call option. In this case, you get paid a premium uh, by the buyer of that option. And that premium serves to offset to the amount of that premium downside potential in that stock. So it's an imperfect hedge. It, it only limits your downside or offsets your downside to the degree of the premium that you collect. Um, so covered call writing is a bullish strategy in, 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 in its form, but it does offer some downside protection. Now, to make things uh, tie, tie a bow on, on those two options, they can, can be combined together in ways to create a very robust hedge and essentially pay for that hedge using money not out of your own pocket. So this is what I refer to as, we refer to as a, a caller, where you sell a call option and use the premium that you collect by selling that call option to pay for the put option, essentially making it what we what we do what, what is referred to as a costless caller. Now, <clears throat> again, to to make the point that there is no free lunch, there is a cost to a costless caller, and the cost is the opportunity cost uh, of foregoing gains or upside beyond the strike price of the call option. Okay, so both in covered call options and callers, where you sell a call option, you're 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 willingly giving up upside beyond that strike price on the call option. Okay, so I'll, I'll pause there. All right, and I think you did a good job. I mean, it can be a complicated um, process for people to understand if they don't have any experience with it, but it really isn't all that complicated once, you, once you've done it once or twice. Um, but essentially, John, you know, what you're saying is, is um, or let me say this, I, I, I think a lot of the types of strategies that you're talking about and that you guys use at, at New Harbor, um, not only are they defensive, but they're, they're helpful for people in general 
who have a sizable position um, that they want to protect. So uh, they might have company stock uh, that they don't want to sell or can't sell. Um, they might have fed stock that they've been gifted that they don't necessarily want to sell or whatever, or they just believe in the long-term prospects of that position, but they want to protect it in the near term. And so what you're doing is, is uh, you're using the strategies that John mentioned here, um, either to spend a little bit of money to protect uh, against a big downside, right? Of, 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 you know, maybe you give up a couple thousand dollars, but you're protecting against many tens of thousands of dollars of, of, of potential downside. Um, or, you know, as John's talking about, there are ways in which you can fund that downside protection um, not by having to take money out of your account and pay for it, but just by giving up some of the opportunity cost should that, um, that position not go down in the short term, but actually go up in the short term, you know, above a certain amount, you, you, you won't participate in that gain, but it's because you, you traded that for the, the downside protection. And, and depending upon people's specific needs and specific risk, risk tolerance, one might be vastly favorable to the other. So, all right, um, I think you did a good job there. Again, options, uh, there's an awful lot that could be done there. You know, John talked about the basics of puts and calls, but even got into collars and covered collars and things like that. Uh, there is a whole lexicon of other different techniques that you can use with options. Uh, John and Mike at New Harbor are putting together a more detailed video uh, about how they use uh, options very successfully to, to mitigate risk beyond what we've just talked about here. And if you're interested in that, at the end of the video, I'll tell you how you can get on the, the mailing list with these guys to get alerted um, when that video is out. Um, all right, Mike, I'm coming back to you now for um, the last topic on our list here, which is futures. And I'm pretty sure that most people here have probably heard the term futures, but I'm pretty confident that most people here have never traded one. Can you just demystify for us what futures are? Yeah, futures really were created to help uh, farmers. I think originally farmers um, wanted the ability to trade their, they wanted to sell their crops and to lock in a price. You know, they might want to sell in March a crop that is going to be harvested in October. And there was wild swings in their income because of the price of different things, corn and wheat and soybeans in the future. So futures contracts basically said, I want to sell, you know, 5,000 bushels of corn in November or yeah, in November, and I want to do it in April. And so that's a, that's a simple futures contract. And the Chicago Mercantile Exchange kind of grew up around that uh, that time and, and is a facilitator or a brokerage for those contracts. There's other there's other uh, futures uh, exchanges now, but the, the, still the Chicago Merc, the Chicago Mercantile is the biggest one. So it originated with agricultural type things. You know, then went into other things like currencies and um, other commodities like energy. And uh, lastly, into different indexes like financial instruments, like equity indexes, bond market, et cetera. So you can trade anything, uh, almost anything in the futures market. And there's some key differences um, between futures and other, other types of instruments. For instance, if you want to short the S&P in a brokerage account, I mentioned earlier that you need a margin account and you need to borrow that instrument and then go ahead and sell it first. In the futures market, there's really no such requirement to have to borrow a security and then sell it. 
the futures exchanges simply can create uh, a negative position or a positive position out of thin air. So you don't have to borrow it. So you don't have the, the, the issue with hard to borrow securities. Uh, secondly, the leverage is greater. You know, you can get greater leverage in a futures account. You may have to only post five or 10 or 15% of the value of the security to enter a longer or short position. There's uh, other advantages too. Like for instance, if you're short a stock, you have to pay the dividend. If you're short means you borrowed the stock from a broker and that stock pays a dividend, you owe the dividend as a short seller. That's not the case in the futures market. So it's cleaner in that, in that sense. And I guess lastly, the futures market is, is, is probably a better way to hedge some things like gold and silver. It's easier to create a negative uh, futures contract or a short futures contract on those things. It's a little bit cleaner and easier, particularly on large positions than it would be to do so with options um, or, or, or other, other means. So I, I really think it's probably beyond the scope of what most people will end up doing, but it's important to know that, for instance, if you're gonna move to somewhere in South America, for instance, you know, let's say you're gonna move, uh, I don't know, I, I happen to notice this, I was talking to a gentleman recently about the Colombian peso, because he is gonna maybe move there someday. There is a futures contract uh, on, the, on the cross between the US dollar and the Colombian peso, or the US dollar and the Japanese yen. If you think that you're going to move, let's say, to Japan a couple of years from now, and you want to, and you've got a significant net worth, you want to start converting to yen, you could, you could buy a Japanese yen futures contract, do a year from now, essentially lock in your price. So that's another example of a hedge. So it's a pretty clean market to be able to do that in. And um, beyond that, I, I'd be happy to say that we could talk to, to people about other, other nuances, but it is um, something that you want to be careful with and not get involved unless you are you're pretty astute or working with a professional. Got it, yeah, and uh, as I understand futures, and I'm not a, an active trader of them, um, they differ from options in the sense that the option gives you the option <laughs> uh, to, to, to transact at the end of the agreement, uh, your choice basically, um, where the futures contract is an agreement um, that once that futures contract expires, that, that transaction is going to be consummated either in delivery of the underlying commodity itself or in cash. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely true, Adam. Most of the time, though, you simply close the contract before the delivery date. There's what's called a notice date where you get the warning. Then there's a delivery date where you actually have to make good on either accepting delivery of that um, underlying or delivering the underlying. Normally, you would simply close out that contract and roll to a future month. It's called, it's called a roll. Uh, and you can either have a negative roll yield or a positive roll yield, depending upon how the different months are priced. All right, great. All right, guys. Well, with that, let's bring this to a close. I think that's enough information to pack into folks' minds uh, in this single video here. Folks, though, as I mentioned, uh, everything that we talked about here and some more detail are uh, included in the free report that goes along with this video. Uh, you can download that for free at wealthion.com slash hedge. And I hope if, if nothing else that this video showed you that there's lots of opportunity out there to protect your wealth against future volatility in the markets. Um, but uh, it really does require some experience in, in each of these different practices that we mentioned. And as we kind of went through the spectrum, the experience needed uh, you know, 
becomes greater and greater. So for folks that are, don't have any initial experience um, in these techniques, but would like to investigate deploying them in their portfolios, their own portfolios, highly recommend that you work under the guidance of a professional financial advisor who can hold your hand through all this, work with you for your goals, you know, your, your personal uh, risk tolerance and all that stuff, and design a custom strategy that makes the most sense for you. Uh, if you've already got a great financial advisor who can do that, awesome, stick with them. If you don't, consider talking to the guys at New Harbor. Um, they give free consultations to folks. They do it as a public service. There's no obligation to work with them. There's no strings attached. Um, if you want to chat with them, just go fill out the form at wealthion.com. Only takes you a couple of seconds. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, if you fill out that form uh, and have your chat with these guys, uh, they will then reach out to you when their more detailed video on options becomes available. And that's the best way to learn uh, how to get uh, uh, alerted to that. Um, and again, if you want the details on, on more about how to connect with the guys at New Harbor, we're going to give you that at the very end of this video. It's coming up in a second. So just stick around for that. Um, one important thing I want to hammer home about hedging is that it only works if done in advance. Uh, you you know, once the market moves, you can't turn back time and say, whoa, 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 no, I wanted to buy my insurance then, right? You can't can't buy your fire insurance after your house just burned down, right? Um, guys, I got a couple quick closing remarks, but just anything you want to add to that important point, John? Yeah, um, that absolutely. You can't you can't buy insurance after your house is burned down, obviously. Um, so it's it's a uh, proactive thing. Um, you know, by definition, time is working against you. Uh, when when uh, considering hedging, because that proverbial uh, you know, house burning down could happen at any given point in time, and and you don't want to be too late. I, I need to make one other very clear point. You know, Adam talked about um, you know working with an advisor. Um, couldn't agree more. Um, these are hands-on things that most folks don't um, either have the interest or or or, or experience to, to to work with. I do need to point out though that we here at New Harbor uh, can deal with all the tools we just talked about with the exception of futures. While we're quite familiar and un understand the futures markets, we are not for regulatory reasons uh, uh, licensed to provide futures trading support for, for clients. So I just wanna make that very clear. Um, but that's about all I have done. All right, great. Well, folks, look, if you've enjoyed this video and you'd like to see more explainer videos on key concepts like this in investing, do us a favor and hit the like button and then subscribe to this channel if you haven't done so already by clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Believe it or not, those two simple steps really do help us get these videos better distributed out there into the world through YouTube and the other platforms. Um, all right, as I mentioned, don't forget to download the free report at wealthion.com slash hedge. John and Mike, thank you guys for sharing your expertise and everybody else, thanks for watching. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate the, the time and uh, hope folks found this helpful. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. 
We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.